Hey everyone, Nick here. I just want to throw in a quick warning before this week's episode. Uh, my audio is not great. Our recording software actually pulled in the wrong feed for me, so it's going to be a little bit tinny on my end. Thankfully, Barry and Brian sound great. I just wanted to give a little warning here so you know I'm aware of it and I don't get any emails or chats about it. Anyway, hopefully you still enjoy the episode, even despite my poor audio quality. I'll make sure it doesn't happen next week. Thanks all for listening, and here's the episode. Welcome to Human Factors Cast, your weekly podcast for human factors, psychology, and design. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Human Factors Cast. We're recording this live on February 17th, 2022. I'm your host, Nick Rome. I'm joined today by a wonderful panel of folks. Up first, up in the up in the top right corner, we have Barry Kirby. Hey, great to be here. How are you doing? Hey, Barry, I am good. And down in the bottom left corner, I don't I don't know. It's like the the, the boxing ring. I don't know. Brian McDonald. Hello, everyone. It's good to be back like to join every few years <laughs> yeah so brian was last on our show for uxpa in boston back in 2018 so welcome back to the show brian we got a great show for you all tonight we're going to be talking about how an app enabled a paralyzed man to walk it's like a miracle and later we're going to be answering some questions from the community about the long-term unemployment zone the differences in experience gained uh, between lab work and internships and when you might want to consider a, a coursework de graduate degree versus a thesis graduate degree. But first, we got some programming notes, and I want to I want to just say a huge thank you to our Discord community. Uh, this last week has been kind of crazy in our Discord. Um, on a whim, I had asked kind of a, uh, "Hey, who's here, and what do you all do?" Uh, you know, like tagged everybody in our Discord. Um, it's been traditionally a little quiet but man it is it is just lit up over the last week there's been a lot of great discussions job posts if you're interested in that type of thing there's a bunch of other human factors professionals from all over the world hanging out in our human factors cast discord uh we've been posting resources for you all uh cheeky comments from barry all the way all the way around um lots of different discussions going on there and i just i thank you all for for participating in that chat we're going to try to be more uh, proactive about putting out those prompts into the world. And so, uh, you know, if you want to be part of that, there's there's links uh, all over the place. In this description, on our website, uh, you can find us. Uh, but it's time we get into the first part of the show we like to call... The first part of the show we like to call... I don't know what that was. Anyway, this is, a, this is Human Factors News. This is why you're here. Uh, we got an exciting one today. I, I mentioned it at the top of the show. Barry, what is our news story this week? So this week we're talking about a spine implant allowed a paralyzed man to control legs using an app. So for the first time ever, an app-based electrical implant has allowed a paralyzed person to walk again. Swiss researchers used electrical implants connected to a tablet app to help Mike Ricardi become the first person to walk again after a severe spinal injury that he suffered during a 2017 motorcycle accident. Though this is the first time the tech has been used on a paralyzed person, the type of implant researchers at the Lausette, Lausanne University, sorry about getting that wrong, um, hospital used to help Riccati walk again is not entirely new. 
Spinal cord stimulators like the one modified for this research have been used for decades to help people manage chronic pain. But this is where this application is new and innovative. Using an app that connects to the device and two backup buttons in case of a wireless wireless signal, users are able to select what type of motion they want. The initial results have been stunning on the three initial subjects. Within the first hours of therapy after implantation, all three were able to move their legs. They were soon able to swim, cycle, and stand with the help of a walker in the lab. Soon after, they were able to move around outside the lab as well. These results have been even more spectacular given how labour-intensive these previous spinal implant researches have been. Previous attempts at using spinal cord stimulation to restore mobility have been largely labour-intensive and required months of working with an intensive rehabilitation team. It can be done quickly. You don't need as many resources, and it could be applied at a much larger scale with this implementation. There's obviously much more work to be done, but making these kind of implants available to the average spinal cord injury patient, this, without a doubt, is a massive breakthrough. Brian, what do you think about having your limbs being controlled by an app? That's super cool, but I am terrified of what happens if the company goes away. Um, Because, yeah, being able to use your limbs when you couldn't do it before, amazing. But like, the same week, uh, IEEE came out with an article about people from who are using a implant in their eye. So the article states that Beth Barbara Campbell was walking through a New York City subway during rush hour when her world went abruptly dark. She'd been using a high-tech implant in her left eye that gave her a crude kind of biotic vision, partially compensating for the genetic disease that rendered her completely blind in the 30s. And she was about to go down the stairs when all of a sudden I heard a beep, beep, beep sound. And that was her Argus 2 retinal implant system powering down. The patches of light and dark she'd been able to see with the implant's help vanished. And that company also vanished. So you couldn't get any updates. People had to get, were trying to get MRIs and couldn't get those. So it's the sort of thing where I would love this to be an amazing like short-term thing where someone can somehow use it for rehab and then potentially not need it anymore. But with the long-term implications, I mean, people just have to take that into consideration when they're getting it. Probably worth the trade-off of something rather than nothing for a short amount of time, but that's terrifying. (laughs) Nick, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I... Cautionary tale, right? I I really do love it when technology can sort of. I mean, that's what technology is for. Technology is for bridging some of those gaps uh, in 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 human performance. And in this case, it is uh, because of a disability. And I I love when technology can bridge those gaps in terms of accessibility. Uh, the Book of Boba Fett just aired, and they have a whole group of people called the mods uh, that have. Uh, enhancements in some way, shape, or form, and this is, I don't know, this is just awesome. You do bring up some great points, Brian, about um, (laughs) what happens if the company goes under. I think this article does kind of touch on a little bit of that. They have some redundancy in physical buttons on on some interface. I don't remember if it's like a, a 
control box or something. But you're right. It, like, what happens if, if it does stop working, customer support doesn't exist, well, then you got to find another company, but you're high and dry in that moment. And it might actually be a moment uh, where... I don't know, maybe it's not life and death now, but like what happens if this like uh, breaks down in the middle of the street um, and you need help from strangers to get you out of the street or on the train tracks and there's no one around or uh, I don't know why you'd be walking over train tracks and there's no one around. My point is it could be really inconvenient. So thank you for bringing up that point. Barry, I am curious as to what your thoughts on this article is. So I, I think it's cool. I mean, like really cool. The fact that we've got um, people who have um, such life-changing conditions that um, they're literally immobilized or they have to rely on people in such a significant way just to live an everyday life, which we all know, we all don't like doing that. And I know a lot of people, you know, get over it and, and um, learn to rely on other people, but we none of us like having our independence taken away. So to have this sort of technology is clearly life-changing um for, for people who have these injuries but i do have questions i've watched the videos um which accompanied the article and i'd encourage people to do so and to have a look at them how must it feel to have movement happening on your body without any stimulation from you you know suddenly um your legs start moving now in the videos you can see that it's being controlled by by the uh, by an app on a on a tablet but at times, the person whose legs are moving, it's not him holding the tablet. It's somebody else. And they're sort of going left leg, right leg, left leg, right leg. And that's just got to feel weird, surely. Um, there's a film over here in the UK. I don't know whether it's, it's made it across the States. It's uh, an animation called, around Wallace and Gromit called The Wrong Trousers. And um, it's kind of the same where the, where the lead character is just, he gets imprisoned in these trousers and they start getting controlled by, by this little penguin and stuff. I suggest you go and watch it because actually it's not dissimilar, dissimilar sort of thing. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, and the control interfaces, how you make that work, um, is going to be, is going to be quite a big deal. And I think we'll go into that in, in the, uh, in the main discussion to the point that, um, uh, the, uh, you both made around, um, the, the you know, the company's gone out of business who produced this sort of thing. This just screams for me, um, open architecture development. It's, it's the sort of stuff that, um, it's got to be out there with um, a good focus on standards. But if you've got an open architecture, then actually if companies do go out of business, then all is not lost. Um, and we are, I think, overall in dev domains going down that route. But this is still, you know, this is proper cutting edge stuff. Even when preparing the show notes for this, it's a struggle to find um, design standards, build standards, HFI standards, um, human factors, best practice around this type of stuff because it is so cutting edge. So it's going to be some some time there yet, but no, I think it's massively exciting. Yeah, I think um, you're you're absolutely right. There are a lot of different things that we have to consider about technology like this, and you actually have some points towards the end of our discussion uh, that I want to make sure we touch on, like cybersecurity, because you mentioned open architecture. Uh, and so um, let's let's kind of use this. You're absolutely right. We did struggle quite a bit to find any relevant literature for this before the show tonight. This largely reminds me of the state that exoskeletons were in uh, just a couple years ago, where there were kind of this lack of standards across the board for what it means to be an exoskeleton, how to design an exoskeleton for a human. I feel like we're kind of at that point now where because of these types of implants, these, this technology, 
we, we kind of need that. So what we're going to do instead of breaking down the human factors aspect of this, there's a lot of psychological issues that go on with dealing with uh, paraplegia. I think one uh, one way we might think about this is kind of um, maybe what someone, uh, what a paraplegic is going through psychologically, and then looking at it through the lens of potentially trying to accommodate some of these when um, when designing either an interface or some sort of uh, interaction mechanism for this type of technology. So, um, Barry, do you want to jump into any of the psychological stuff? Anything yeah, standing think, out to you? Yeah, it is. I mean, firstly, I think the, the real big hitter here is no to we, we talk about paraplegia like you know it, it's just the same for everybody when it clearly can't be um because everybody's um a injury itself is going to be unique um one way or another because where you've got the injury is going to is going to differ up and down the spine and the, the the higher up the spine um you have your injury means you have a different level of um of, of paraplegia a different level of, of disability so from that perspective alone, um, everybody's injury is going to be different. But also then the psychological effects of having that injury is is going to be different for, for every person because you're going to deal with it differently depending on a whole range of factors like what support have you got around you? How have you dealt with it yourself? What sort of accident was, was were you in? Was it um, Did it involve other people being injured at the same time? Was it your fault? Was it somebody else's fault? You know, there's a whole lot of things around there, just around the incident itself, and then your recovery. Um, what? How much impact has it had on your your day to day life? Has it has it done things around that? So yeah, there's a whole lot of things like that that really make this type of injury. Um, really unique to each person and we've got to be able to map that in some way and i don't think that sort of thing truly exists yet um so there's there's work to be done there um brian is there anything in that list that um, stands out for you that you that you think we should be hitting thinking of the psychological things the biggest thing for me was just like simplicity because typically when people don't have that 100 percent like cognitive load that everyone thinks about designing for it things have to be easier to use and that's going to be incredibly hard when you're having something that's as complex as this where everyone is a little bit different how do you make that easy to configure without necessarily you know taking away people's ability to change what they need to change You know, I want to jump in here because there's a couple things that stand out to me from this list of, I guess, psychological conditions and and some that I think a lot of us can relate to. So things like depression, anxiety, fatigue, anger, all things that many of us have experienced during the duration of this global pandemic. Can you imagine uh, just for a second what it might be like if, um, you know, on top of that, you were dealing with not being able to move parts of your body? I just that to me screams like especially especially hard for those individuals right now in, in these times, in these unprecedented times. I think there's, you know, it's like this compound effect of having everything going on right now, but then all this on top of it. And this is this is seminal research that has been around for a while on on those with um, paraplegia. And, and so 
you know, the fact that just everything is compounding right now is, uh, I don't know, it, it seems pretty heavy. And so coming back to the psychological side of things, when you actually do sort of come up with some solution like this or a solution like we talked about earlier in last year, I guess, uh, which we'll reference at the end, it was on the being able to control an exoskeleton with brain signals. Um, when you come up with these type of solutions to this thing, it, it immediately gives that person back some agency that they were missing. And um, as little as it is, and we'll talk about some of the concerns, design considerations as it as it pertains to this technology here in just a minute. But you know, as it as it relates to giving people back their agency, I think every little step absolutely helps. And that's just kind of awesome to see technology help reduce some of these issues um, with, uh, with, with psychological um, conditions. So let's jump into the article. Uh, normally, we, like I said, we usually do like a big, long um, breakdown of human factors issues. The psychological issues, I think we kind of covered. I do want to just kind of jump in and, and talk about what's going on here, because I think there is a lot to discuss as it relates to the way in which the interaction happens here. Mm -hmm. um, and so, Brian, I, I saw you in the chat. You put in some show notes. I want to make sure that we have uh, that we talk about this because you, you brought up a good point about haptics. Let's talk about it. Yeah, so just the brain can be tricked by other senses kind of easily. So how can you use that here to really design a better experience? I know that you can put on VR glasses and touch something that looks cold because it's blue and it's not even very realistic. It's pretty cartoony. Um, but you can touch something hot and think it's cold because you see it being differently. And the same way that you can trick your brain to be eating a soggy chip. And as long as you hear that crunch the exact right time, you're going to think it's really crispy, which is kind of wild. So how do you do that when you're trying to design footsteps? That's going to be really hard, but it'd be crazy to see if someone could, I don't know, somehow implement some microphones on the feet or something. So then when you're using your limbs, it really does feel embodied to you and not like someone else is controlling it because you feel like you're in control. Yeah. I, I, I am drawing a blank on what that concept is. It's a, uh, it's not the phantom concept or the phantom mirror. It's, it's, it's the one where you're pairing stimuli with something else. And yeah, it, it all comes back to that experience, right? It could ultimately make somebody's experience better using uh, this type of thing, if if everything around that interaction seems more normal, and it, it, all down to the sound and the feel. Um, there's, I, I do want to mention one point here. Uh, the the way in which this works, because I think maybe it was mentioned in the blurb, but I do want to like call attention to it. Basically, the way this works, uh, it's not like the the person is you know, controlling a, a joystick on an app, moving them forward, they are selecting a mode. Uh, and, and then their legs do that based on the signals that the implant sends to their legs. So they have, um, you know, different modes, presumably for walk or cycle or swim, and the legs will just do those things. And so the body then has to sort of prepare for those changes. The, 
you know, when you start walking, you uh, sort of unconsciously lean forward because walking is controlled falling. Um, and so those are types of things that you have to consider when you're engaging in these different modes, right? Start walk mode. Well, they need to be able to know when that feedback is coming to, to lean forward to get into the walk. Um, I think the the other thing of note here is that there are backup buttons on uh, the device itself. Uh, so I guess uh, we're talking about the implant here. I don't know if it's like sticking out of their back or if there's controls on the side or wherever those are reachable. There are presumably um, backup buttons. And my, I guess my question is like, why aren't those the primary modes of, of uh, switching, I guess, <laughs> modes it just makes it makes the app part of it seems like um a little much unless those buttons are unreachable and why would you not just design something that's on your person that's hardwired in so that way you always have control and you know you can start and stop whenever you want to and not have to worry about the lag that comes through an app anyway these are just some things that i think of barry you have a whole laundry list of items here you want to go through some of it yeah, so I mean, this follows on really nicely from what you're just saying around the design considerations, because again, the the location of how you control this this thing is is going to be so um, so key to what what's going on and how you engage that. So um, this is one of the, um, the the missing bits, I think, out of the article and the videos that we've seen is exactly what the app interface looks like, where the control buttons are, because I think there's control buttons on the device. There's also, also control buttons on the walker. That the that the uh, the man was using to uh, to when he was doing his walking, um, and and so the really the, the location of where all his controls are uh, is going to be absolutely key to making sure that it's a it's an accessible um, and usable device from you know because you know you're not going to have a perfect world all the time you're probably going to fall over at some point because we all fall over so you need to be able you know is it in place for recovery and things like that then you're going to have that strength versus weight issue you do if you've got basically these exoskeleton legs that are so heavy that you then can't go in lift or you can't use normal you know you you create implant in, imprints in the in different material floors and things like that um for or you get legs that are suddenly much stronger than you would actually have for normal use um it gives you a um i guess it would give you a feeling of something that maybe isn't quite right um, how is it actually attached to the body? Is it something like you have, it fits over your um, your normal legs and is it strapped in? So you're going to have to think about um, how is it strapped to the body? Do you get things like sores? How does it fit with the skin um, and, and things like that? It's, it's, and we, there's a lot of research into that already where you have amputees using um, um, false limbs and things. How does that sort of thing work? But you're, pro you're clamping this over a um a set of legs that are already there they just don't work so how does that fit in and also the attachments that go into the spine themselves because as you said the you've got that spine receptor how do we make sure that that stays medicinally clean safe um and and maintained the the materials that we get are going to be um expensive i mean we we see at the moment the trying to get materials for doing this type of thing is is going up because of the, the issues around the pandemic and and all that type of thing um but then I think the you know we we keep on coming back to circling back to this this interface consideration, and one of the big things that worries me more than anything else is almost it it says it's being controlled by an app, 
that's great. And we see on the videos that um, somebody else has the uh, that somebody else has the tablet, and that's so that's fine if you're controlling it and you can get yourself into the mode. Right, I'm I'm moving forward now. I'm going to start for, forward motion. Go. You prepare your body, lean forward, all that sort of stuff. What happens if somebody else picks it up and just starts going? Um, your your legs suddenly start going out from in front of you, and and you're just motoring forward like like you didn't really or back or whatever it is um it that that concerns me about how you how you would either how you could how you that what would happen around that but also how would you stop from that from happening um is there some level of security that we need to make sure that nobody else can walk off with your legs basically um so i think there's a, it'd be interesting to see a lot of development around that control i think it'd be, be um quite a key thing is there anything else that you've got, Nick, that you think that uh, we should be bringing out? Yeah, I was going to jump in. That's almost like a good segue into kind of the cybersecurity side of things. I think there's huge cybersecurity issues that you have to think about with this. And you just brought up one right there, right? If you're, uh, you, It's only as strong as your weakest link. If you have your phone unlocked and somebody grabs it and someone controls your legs with it, they could send you off in the other direction while they steal all your valuables. Like, I don't... It, um, to me, the app itself adds an unnecessary layer of controls that just I don't feel need to be there right now. Maybe as as the technology advances and there's more advanced controls, three buttons won't do it, right? Cycle, swim, walk are, are no longer the controls. Maybe now I want to run, and I want to run at a certain miles per hour, and I want to, like... I don't know. I can think of different things. Like I want to walk at a slow pace or adjusting my pace to walk next to somebody that I'm with. Right. Like that, that might be where that app comes in handy later, where you can specify some certain parameters around your movement. For now, I think it does introduce a lot of those complex cybersecurity issues on top of being, you know, being losing your phone. There's, there's also the, the, potential of being hacked and um why would anybody want to hack people well i think there's a lot of good reason i just you know said it if you can if you can if uh, effectively brick somebody and and have them immobile um then you could almost without consequence go up and do anything to them you could harm them you could steal their stuff you could um I don't know, hold them ransom. I think there's a lot to consider with that. And uh, I don't know, you guys have any other points on cybersecurity? Uh, Brian, any, any yeah. thoughts? I don't have on cybersecurity, but I do on the app because I do think that as it is right now, maybe the app isn't super useful, but using phones is one of the key ways blind people navigate these days. They use their phone for everything, for screen readers, for like just navigation, for letting people know what's in their hand and stuff. And so adding that phone Bluetooth into this, I could see as lev being leveraged really well in the future. It does require a lot of security, but that's the same thing for other things. Like if you steal someone's phone, that's just where bodily autonomy is going to have to be huge mm. and very important. Barry, any, any last comments on this story? Yeah, I think just to sort of wrap both of them up, I think the cybersecurity issue is, um, is is significant. And it might not be anything truly malicious in that in that respect as well, but could you imagine having a um, you know, so 
either you've got it or your fr- your friends are you one of your friends are using this. You all have a few drinks, we're having a party, and then somebody decides it's a fun idea to nick the um um to, to take the, the the screen the tablet and have a go with your mate's legs and see what's going on so it, it could be as simple as that that would that would seem you know, one of these things funny at the time but actually be quite a traumatic uh quite a traumatic experience so i think this idea of the um you know open architectures and stuff like that is yes it, it's got a lot there but it, it does need to be think thought think uh, thought about quite a lot fundamentally i still think it's a very exciting thing and um it's clearly the the leading edge of some really 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 inspirational research but i think it's got to go, got a long way to go before it's actually truly something that can be um seen as a you know a, something available on the market yeah i agree brian any last thoughts on this one no i think we just about covered it <laughs> yeah for me i think uh i think we brought up a lot of issues with the design of the app and sort of the practical nature of having something like this i was honestly worried that we wouldn't have enough content to cover but we i think just about beat this thing uh into the ground so uh thank you to our patrons this week for selecting the topic and thank you to our friends over at futurism and nbc news for our news story this week if you want to follow along we do post the links to all the original articles on our weekly roundups on our blog you can also join us on our slack or discord uh, for more discussion on these stories We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to see what's going on in the Human Factors community right after this. Human Factors Cast brings you the best in Human Factors news, interviews, conference coverage, and overall fun conversations into each and every episode we produce. But we can't do it without you. The Human Factors Cast Network is 100% listener supported. All the funds that go into running the show come from our listeners. Our patrons are our priority, and we want to ensure we're giving back to you for supporting us. Pledges start at just $1 per month and include rewards like access to our weekly Q&As with the hosts, personalized professional reviews, and Human Factors Minute, a Patreon-only weekly podcast where the hosts break down unique, obscure, and interesting Human Factors topics in just one minute. Patreon rewards are always evolving, so stop by patreon.com slash humanfactorscast to see what support level may be right for you. Thank you, and remember, it depends. Yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons, especially want to thank our honorary Human Factors cast staff patron, Michelle Tripp. And uh, I do want to mention, a couple shows ago, I guess we said, you know, we were just a couple patrons away from being self-sustaining, and uh, hey, we did it! Thank you to all of our patrons! Uh, everything going forward, I want to let you all know what's going on with uh, the support that you are giving to us. Everything that we get going forward is going to be put back into the show in one way or another, uh, and some exciting ways. We kind of have a roadmap for where those, where that support goes uh, long term. You know, we're not pocketing the money at this point. We are kind of putting it into other things. Like I said, uh, you know, we'll we'll put it into some more advanced transcription software that will uh, sort of make this more accessible for um you know the the hearing impaired and so uh there, there's other pathways that we are going to use your support to help bring the show to other people uh, i do want to mention that patreon has some other fun stuff too we we always mention the human factors minute but we do have full audio versions of the podcast but what does that mean um normally we do a pre-show and a post-show uh that you wouldn't get unless you're watching our live streams or check them out after the fact uh, but you do get that as an audio version if you're a patron. 
We do host weekly Q&As, so a lot of times we'll get uh, some questions from our patrons that we prioritize for the show. And then uh, we also early access to the show by a couple hours. So, you know, I produce that one first, send it out, and kind of wait on the other one. And uh, so our patrons get the show first, and it's the full version first. So there's that. And then we also have bonus content that we release from time to time. So like when we did our full revamp of our nice, pretty logo you see uh, everywhere, (laughs) our patrons saw everything, uh, including all the design process in those. So yes, huge thank you as always to our patrons. Let's they they keep the show running literally. Thank you all so much for your continued support. Let's go ahead and get into this next part of the show. It came from. It came from. That's right. Let's switch gears. Get to it came from this week is a little interesting. So last week on the show, uh, our audio got cut off right at the end, at the tail end of our It Came Froms. We got like the reading of this in, but I edited that out for obvious reasons because our answers weren't in. So we have three tonight. One of them is from Reddit. The other two actually came from Discord. So this will be fun. Uh, Let's get into this first one here. It's from Kaiju Corgi on the user experience subreddit. They write, hey all, I'm a career changer in UX, and despite a a lot of effort, I've recently reached the long-term unemployment zone. Uh, There's a lot of context here. I'm going to skip over some of it. But basically, um, you know, their question here is, how can I solve some of my assumed weaknesses as a UX applicant? They're having a a difficult time, obviously, applying for, or or, sorry, getting a job in that long-term unemployment zone. Um, they, they go through a lot of different assumptions here about uh, what they think might be holding them back and some you know things they might do to address some of those issues. But um, I want to ask you guys, and, and I'll start with Barry on this one since since you answered this last week. I want to ask you, Barry, how let's see how how would you tackle that long term unemployment? And um, I don't know how do you how do you sort of self reflect? Well, touch wood so far, then um, I'm looking enough not to have had that significant period of unemployment, but the I've certainly talked and worked with um, a number of people who have. And and fundamentally, it's about, you just got to try and A, keep yourself relevant. And it's it's a difficult thing to do because the, um, you know, the uh, Kaju Kogi sort of highlights that they've been, um, their job gap is two years long, which is quite a significant period of time. Um, the... They've, they've sort of got their one one big case study that they keep on uh, they keep on giving out, and really you you if you're not get, not being employed then you know the, there is voluntary work to do there is the the engagement in community there is just putting yourself out there um, that you, that you can try and get on with but you've also got to keep your um, your mental agility up I guess or basically your motivation going because it can be quite um, quite depressing, quite, you know, you, you've got nowhere else to go. You keep on just looking in on, in on yourself. So you've got to try and work at keeping yourself motivated. The flip side is true as well, though, that if actually you, you know, you're getting good positive experience, but you're still not getting the jobs, are you going for the right sort of jobs? Are you, is, is there, should you be broadening your scope maybe to something that isn't just straight looking at sort of UX? Because actually UX is a small facet of the entire um, gamut of human factors and ergonomics. Um, could you be broadening your uh, broadening your outlook a bit, um, and 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 fundamentally, do, 
keep going at it because certainly right at this moment in time in the UK, so if you're listening from the UK, this is um, really useful. The um, There are more human factors jobs out there than there are human factors practitioners. And so the in many ways, just keep going with it. But it's it it's hard work. It's it's not an easy thing to do. And having worked with a few people um, as a mentor to try and get them through through that period, it's that mental battle I think that is is the hardest thing to deal with and keep going. Um, what about you, Nick? Have you got experience in this area? I don't have experience in the long term unemployment zone. Uh, I, I will just echo a couple points here. I think you answered pretty similarly to how you did last week. Um, there's a goodness there's for that. A couple, <laughs> <laughs> There's a couple points that I want to make here. Uh, one is that I think the this person who's commented on um, this Reddit post, I think they're already on the right track of kind of looking at that self-reflecting is, is really important. But the other piece of it that I think is also really important is staying engaged. Um, there are things in which you can do that are still kind of... Uh, I don't know, you're engaging with your community. And so if you go to conferences in the UX or human factor space, if you go to, uh, if, you, if you're part of sort of these committees that happen, you can still uh, sort of professionally continue your career and do stuff meaningful to a society or a, an organization that might uh, sort of fill in some of those long-term unemployment gaps. You also uh, network through those things. And I know it's hard right now because everything's virtual, but going to those events, and I know it's it's kind of sunken cost because you don't have a job, you're probably tight on money, but going to a conference can really, really help, especially when you get face-to-face -face with other people. You never know who you're going to say, oh, hey, I'm hiring. Oh, also, by the way, uh, Human Factors Cast Discord channel, someone's hiring, so go check that out. Um, and so, like, you know, there, there are avenues that you can do uh, that you can look into, especially for um, trying to keep up that uh, continued effort involvement in your profession. Um, I'm going to shut up now. I want to hear what Brian has to say about this. Yeah, so um, I kind of want to talk about Barry's point for a second, where he said, like, there's a lot of different ways you can go into UX. And I think that's really true. Like, me and my partner both went to the same grad school, but I'm a UX designer and she's a UX researcher. I have a design background. She has a psych background. So where really are your strengths? And then kind of figure out where you can go there. Um, and then with Nick, like I there are a lot of really awesome virtual conferences that you can go to for free. That is one good thing that the pandemic has done is that there's a lot more virtual free events than there were previously. And yeah, it's not necessarily as good as face to face, but you can still talk to a lot of people, you can still make an impact and make some friends. And uh, yeah, one of the things they said was that they had a strong idea for a local nonprofit. But if they did the work, they'd still need to find a dev and high risk, high reward. But do they need a dev? No, I think that's awesome to go figure out a good volunteer opportunity and get a really good portfolio piece from that. Even if nothing comes from it, you can still say, I worked with this company, I did this work, here's this awesome work. And that plus polish on the portfolio, I think that's one of the biggest things. You really do need to crank that thing up to 11 because people don't look at it for very long. 
I know one thing I had to do after I graduated because I graduated in uh, December of 2019. And then I took a few months off to work on my portfolio. And then the pandemic happened. So <laughs> I certainly understand applying to jobs in the middle of the pandemic. It's uh, not fun. But if you can work on that portfolio and take those projects even further, that really helps out a lot. Yeah, good answers. All right, let's get into this next one here. This one's actually uh, from our Discord, from Vanessa, who is also a patron. Uh, so I want to I want to read this one in full here. If anyone can speak to this, please let me know. I was lucky to be offered a user experience research internship last semester. I am currently in an internship that is a bit of outside of the human factor scope. Um, I am now also being considered for a government agency VR-centric internship. My question is, does it look better to have a mix of lab and internship experience or to learn more heavily or lean more heavily into one or the other? Um, and so I, I want to pass this over to Brian first. Uh, do you have uh, kind of a, any experience with a mix of um, lab and internship work? And what's kind of your opinion on this? I mean, my opinion is, what do you want to do afterwards with it? If you really want to work for like some sort of lab, then go for that lab work. But if you want to work for a different type of company, go for that internship. Um, I think that's kind of my biggest thing. I had a little bit of lab consultancy testing, but um, I think having that internship at a different company also gives you that edge. What are your thoughts, Barry? Um, I think that if it's one of these things, if they know exactly what it is they want to do and they've got a driving passion to go and do do this one thing, go with whatever suits that. Uh, closest however unless you've got that drive then do whatever you can to mix it up because having a broad range of experiences certainly as early on in your career as you can um you might go in thinking i'm going to do x but actually you think oh i've just found that i'm going to do i want to do this instead i mean that's kind of how it was for me when i first started you know my background is in command and control engineering um but there was this one module on the course that was all around into um well gui design at that point and um, to graphical user interfaces that were, that were programmed in C in like many years ago. And um, and I was like, actually, this is really good fun. And that just that one little bit then spiraled into, into other stuff. So for me, it's about um, getting as broad a range of experiences as possible. So I would go for anything you can do to to mix it up. And that will give you a broader, broader life experience to then go and make some um, decisions that, uh, that you don't really need to make for another year or so or a couple of years yet. Yeah, I'll kind of uh, recite my my answers with maybe some a little bit of elaboration. So I am also go for the mix because you never know what skills are going to be applicable to your end job, right? You might have a situation where maybe as an internship, they give you a little bit more, uh, I don't know, agency within, within the company. You also... Uh, in a lab, you might actually have some project management going on if you are a grad student. And so think about these types of things. Um, think about what types of skills you can get from each of these opportunities and kind of how they sort of play into your end goal. Uh, and it, it could really help. Like, let's say you do ultimately want to get into VR. Well, then I would look into that VR internship because it makes it a lot easier to jump from VR to VR than, I don't know, say like automotive design to VR. Uh, it, it could be the difference between getting into the field and not. Um, that's just my two cents. 
We have time for one more. Let's get into this one. This one's by Vianney, also a patron in our Discord. Go figure. Uh, <laughs> Vianney writes, uh, what does everyone think about coursework master's degree versus thesis master's degree? Would the former be sufficient if I'm just looking to enrich myself with human factors knowledge to apply for a human factors related job? Or should I pursue a thesis master's degree? Barry, how do things work in the UK? And, and do they have a non-thesis option in, in grad school? Do you know? Yeah, no, we do. We you can either do a um, a taught a, a taught masters or a research masters, um, which I think is ba basically the, the equivalent. Um, and Amanda, my wife, is doing her um, human factors um, taught degree uh, taught masters right now. So, and that was a deliberate decision that we both talked about. We both went through and looked at the pros and cons. But because we, because um, again, because we met at university, how cute um, the. We, so we both got this engineering background and she, since she's been part of the business for so long, she, she finally decided she wanted to learn some human factors stuff. And I was like, well, there's no point from my, my belief, there's no point going to try and do a research masters if you're wanting to learn skills. Um, so I would push, strongly encourage the idea of going down this, um, going down a, a taught masters. The difference in the UK is there is no currently, currently there is no undergraduate degrees for human factors at all there was one or two they've now dried up and so you have to go and get a first degree and then to get your um, human factors degree you then have to they're all masters regardless and um, there's some work going on around degree apprenticeships but that's that's coming in the future um so yeah so i would personally i would go down the coursework masters um unless you want to go and do a research human factors job then obviously that that then goes into that so i just got in that the, the quick it, it depends at the end Yeah, Brian, let's hear from you. Depend. So, I mean, my incredibly biased answer is that I got a coursework master's, and that's worked very well in the market professionally. However, I didn't want to become a PhD. I didn't want to go to that next research level. If you do, then look at the thesis. But otherwise, I think the coursework is just as good, if not better, because I have heard it's easier. Of course, I only took one, not two, so I don't have any comparison. Um, but it seems to work very well in the market. And, uh, so yeah, I wouldn't really worry about it. What do you think, Nick? Yeah. It's, uh, you guys stole my answers. Uh, look, I think it, it really does come down to that. It depends. And I actually put this in our discord. I made a big, it depends button because it really does on what the outcome you want from it is. If you're unsure where you want to go, whether it's academia or industry, then I would say err on the side of caution and go with the thesis because that will give you sort of the appreciation for the, um, I guess, uh, rigor that it takes to do scientific research. Um, and you will always kind of have that option to continue your line of research in academia. And it's still a pretty relatively easy jump into industry thesis or not. If you are dead set on being industry, you know for sure you don't want to be in academia. I would say go with the the um, the self-taught non-thesis option uh, because then you're saving yourself time because a lot of thesis are not done in two years. Um, and, uh, you know, you can get in and out with coursework in two years and that's, that's time that you won't get back. Uh, so unless you're super passionate about it. All right, uh, that'll do it for It Came Froms this week. Let's just get into this next part of the show. We like to call One More Thing. Uh, Brian, it's been a while since we have caught up with you. What is your One More Thing this week? 
Yeah, my one more thing is uh, the MIT Reality Hack, an XR hackathon is back. So I'll be going to that in March, and I'm super excited to actually like see other humans in a masked and vaccinated area, but also get to play with a bunch of cool headsets and tech. Can you please come back on the show and tell us all about that? Yeah, sure. <laughs> that sounds awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it was a good time last time. I'm sure it'll be great this time, too. Barry, what's your one more thing this week? Well, I'm going to go for my usual thing and have a twofer. Um, but in that, um, just yesterday, I presented with HFES on climate ergonomics. So if you're a member of HFES and you can go back and see the recording of that, please go do so. It was a whole heap of fun. But more importantly, the LA Rams won the Super Bowl. Woo! Hence our Rams talk. There we go. Um, what was interesting for me about this, it took me two days to watch. Because obviously, here in the UK, it was a um, half 11 uh, kickoff. Uh, half 11 at night kickoff. But then I, I couldn't work out whether to sleep beforehand and then watch the game or watch the game and then sleep. Because I, ha- I was away, I was in a hotel because I was I was doing some um, user trials the next day. And so I sort of did the worst of both worlds. I watched it up to half time, then fell asleep. And then so the ne- next morning woke up and I was like, fine, I, I can watch it on, uh, I can watch that. But then got I had meetings first thing in the morning. So I got to the, so with 10 minutes to go, um, I had to stop, go and do my business meetings for the day, um, then drive home, and then watch the last five minutes, which were a very exciting five minutes of, of, of the game, um, basically that evening. And I never got to actually see the the, the um, halftime show until last night. So it's taken me a long time just to watch this game, but fundamentally, go Rams. Nick, what <laughs> I about you? Ask you- Hang on, I, I want to I want to pull the thread. We have a little bit of time left. I want to pull the thread on this halftime show thing, and I want to get your thoughts on this because this is something that's so interesting to me. Because you have two different generations claiming that this was their show. You have the Gen X mm-hmm. people, uh, and you have the Millennials, who are both claiming that this was built for them. And it, to me, it's interesting because one, there's sort of this generational tug of war going on uh, and and trying to claim ownership of something that I think um, sort of the younger Gen X and elder millennials both experienced around the same time. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's just fascinating that that we categorize these things in a way that that's, I don't know, it just putting, I guess we as scientists and <laughs> people in general like to put things into buckets i don't know what, what are your thoughts on it brian have you did you watch the halftime show do you think it's do you think it makes sense to bucket this uh i did watch the halftime show and i think the most appropriate bucket is if it related to you you're old now that's kind of just <laughs> what happens <laughs> <I'm leaving. laughs> i mean i saw it and i loved it and i was like "Ooh, Ooh i guess dude. i am old now <laughs> I don't think that, like, yeah, the divide really makes a whole lot of sense, but we do like to group people whether we should or not. Yeah. Barry, Barry, what are your thoughts on that whole generational divide? Yeah, well, I think it was an interesting because we've now got artists that, ha- that span such a long period as well that um, that I think the, you know, the artists we're on did generally, generally span the sort of the end of the sort of the Gen X into the millennial and, and that type of thing. So, um it was brilliant to watch, um, and I think it was it was just fun. I mean, my my kids sort of watched it as well, and they and they're like, sort of, what comes after millennial Gen Y? Um, 
Gen, oh, no, Gen Z, isn't it? Yeah, Gen they Z. Go that way. Um, and so even they were sort of saying, "Oh, actually, no, some some of their music was was ours as well." So, and you're like going, "No, no, no, it's definitely not yours." Um, <laughs> so. No, it, it was good. I mean, what was also good to see around that show was more people enjoying themselves, um, you know, with, with what we've been through. I don't know. Did you see it and just think, oh, that's a lot of people together in a very small space, not wearing masks? <laughs> um, you, you sort of have this almost shock reaction now every time you see a, um, um, a thing. Because what was also cool was, because I watched it on, on, um, on YouTube, and it then automatically on the playlist jumped straight into some of the previous years. And I think it went back to uh, Super Bowl 50. And um, and there was just loads of people, lots and lots and lots of people crammed in doing this. And it was like, well, you wouldn't get that nowadays. Yeah, <laughs> but can, you believe, can you believe I we know. used to do some of that stuff? Just a new person, shake their hand without even, like, crazy. I know. <laughs> but fundamentally, uh, still, go Rams. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> uh, my, my one more thing this week um, is, is uh, I guess... I don't know. Interesting. So it's it's also tough to talk about because I mentioned on the show a couple uh, last month that I was seeking. Um, I talked about my therapist in the pre-show, but I, I am now medicated uh, for what I suspect was ADHD, and I am pretty sure that's the case. After taking some of these meds, um, they've taken a while to kick in. However, uh, I have had the most productive two weeks of my life the last two weeks. Uh, I am very, it's like so much more attentive to everything going on. Um, and, and this even goes back to the show that, uh, Barry and I did last week, but was planned for the previous week. So I guess that's what, two weeks now. Uh, I had actually done the show notes on a Wednesday night because I looked at the polls and said, okay, yeah, that's probably going to be this show. It's, it's not going to really change. And I went through, I did all the show notes. I said, Hey Barry, here you go. I scared him away. Uh, and, and, uh, and then we didn't do the show the next day. And so the, the show notes were ready for a week. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've, I've just come off of uh, the best two weeks, uh, both professionally and personally in, in my own life uh, with getting everything organized. Like I, uh, I guess, you know, like doing dishes and cleaning the living room are no longer issues for me because I'm not in my head about something else. Um, and same thing with doing things for the podcast. And some days are better than others. But I, anyway, all this to say, it's just a PSA to go. If you if you think something, or maybe you're like, do do everybody suffer like this? Does everybody function this way? Um, you know, maybe talk to somebody about it. And if you need to talk to somebody about their experience, feel free to reach out to me on on the Slack or just or Discord. Happy to uh, talk about mine with you. Um, so with that PSA out of the way, uh, that's going to be it for today, everyone. Let us know what you guys think of, uh, of the story this week. If you like the discussion about the psychology uh, behind sort of the paraplegia and controlling your body with other devices, then go go listen to episode 205. That's where Blake and Elise broke down driving exoskeletons with uh, brain signals. Really, really interesting stuff. Comment wherever you're listening with what you think of the story this week. For more in-depth discussion, always join us on our Discord community. We actually started to voice chat earlier this week. It was fun. You can always visit our official website, sign up for our newsletter, stay up to date with all the latest Human Factors news. If you like what you hear, you want to support the show, there's a couple ways you can do that. One, you can leave us a five-star review wherever you're at right now. Just hit that five-star, leave us some reviews, tell other people it's good. Two, tell your friends about us. Word of mouth is really how we grow. 
Uh, and three, if you're able to, consider supporting us on Patreon. We do put all that money right back into the show. Might actually help others find the show for things like, uh, you know, AI transcription services. Uh, as always, links to all our socials um, uh, are in the website are going to be in the description of this episode. I want to thank Mr. Brian McDonald for being on the show today, this year, I guess I should say. Where can our listeners go and find you if, uh, if they want to hear more from you? Yeah, well, since I have a very generic name, I like to throw my middle initial in there. So on pretty much all the things on Twitter, I'm Brian C. McDonald, LinkedIn, the same. And my website is BrianCMcDonald.com. Easy enough. I want to thank Mr. Barry Kirby for being on the show today. Where can our listeners go and find you? I'm around on Twitter and other socials, but fundamentally I'm at Baz underscore K. And check me out on my podcast at 1202 podcast.com. As for me, I've been your host, Nick Rome. You can find me uh, on social media at Nick underscore Rome. Thanks again, everyone, for tuning into Human Factors Cast. Until next time, it, it depends. depends. Spacecraft, railway locomotives, nuclear submarines, healthcare, jet aircraft, these are all examples of highly technical systems and organizations, and all have one particular thing in common. They all involve humans. Humans who want to do amazing things and are using technology to achieve them. They all have something else in common. They have amazing people ensuring that the users who are involved can do what they need to do, are safe when they do so, and have the optimum user experience. These people are Human Factors practitioners, and on 1202 The Human Factors Podcast, they talk to me, Barry Kirby, about what they do sharing their career paths, highlighting their ideas and best practices, and fundamentally raising awareness of our discipline. Find us on 1202podcast.com, on social media, and on your favourite podcast directory, because it's more than just common sense.